Jesus says to love our neighbors. But here's what I found is so oftentimes we have a metaphorical love for our metaphorical neighbors. And the end result is actually that we do very little in the way of actually loving anybody at all. And so what we're talking about over the course of this series is about being intentional with the literal neighbors that God has placed all around us and how we can love our literal neighborhood. If you've got your Bibles open up to Matthew chapter 22, we'll be in verse 34. And as you're turning there, let me give us a little bit of context. Uh, at this point, Jesus in his ministry and life has thoroughly ticked off all of the religious leaders. And so they're kind of ganging up on Jesus at this point and bringing their best questions to Jesus in order to trick him and trap him in an effort to discredit him. And so this is round three of all of these different types of questions brought to Jesus. And here's where we pick up in verse 34, chapter 22. It says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, what you need to understand is when he says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? There's 613 commandments in the Hebrew scriptures. And so this is a real test here. Jesus, do you really know your stuff? Like out of 613 commandments, which one is the most important? And even though this is a trick, an attempt to discredit Jesus, Jesus answers this man. He says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Now, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, of course, he's not talking about the organ that pumps blood in your body. It, the heart is the, the center of your emotions. It's your desire. It's your affections. And so what that tells us is that God is not just looking for our obedience. He wants to be the center of our affection. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And when Jesus talks about soul, he's talking about the willful decision-making part of ourselves. It's what makes you you. It's what makes you unique. Your soul is what makes you unique. You're not a cookie cutter of anybody. And so when we love God as a choice, even when we don't feel the emotions, that's when we love God with our, with our soul. It's like when, when God asks us to forgive somebody that we don't feel like forgiving, we love God with our soul. It's when God asks us to serve somebody when we don't feel like serving, we love God with our soul. It's when God asks us to be kind and answer a wrong done to us with kindness, even when we don't feel like it, we love God with our soul. And so Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. And the third thing is with all of your mind. Your mind is your intellect. That this is not a mindless faith that God wants you to use your intelligence to love him. What this tells us, uh, when you look at the, this kind of full picture of this love that, that God is asking, is that this is not a, a one day a week kind of love, not a Sunday morning kind of love. It's not just a when I feel like it kind of love. It's not just a family love or a friendship love or a loyalty love. This is an all-encompassing kind of love. It's a love that puts God first uh, above all things. And Jesus says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. That of everything that God invites and asks us to do, you can condense it all down to this. Love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. But what strikes me is the second part of what Jesus says. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Listen to this. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
that everything that you see in Scripture hang on these two things. On one side is loving God, and on the other side is loving your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets hang on these two things. The Greek word for hang on is the word krematai, and it literally means to depend on something. That all of the law and the prophets, all of the commandments depend on loving God and loving your neighbor. Think about it kind of like this. Think about it like a suspension bridge. Now, I'm going to show you a picture of the Trift Bridge. This is in the Swiss Alps, uh, and, and it's just a, a beautiful place. But imagine you're in the Swiss Alps, you're walking across the Trift Bridge, and, and you're right now in the middle of it. And you look over the edge, and, and you see it's a 330-foot drop to the canyon below. And it's an expansive rich bridge. Now, if you're standing in the middle of this bridge, how important would you say the anchors are on each side of these bridge? Pretty important, right? Can you have one of these anchors and not the other and be safe? Of course not. Would you say that you can have one side connected and the other side unconnected? Absolutely not, right? That would be ridiculous. See, what Jesus is saying is that loving God and loving your neighbor, these two things are inseparable. That you can't do one without doing the other. Neither can you negate the one without negating the other. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this in. That you can't love God fully unless you love your neighbor deeply. And you can't love your neighbor fully unless you love God deeply. These two commandments go together. Loving God and loving your neighbor. John says it like this in 1 John chapter 4. He says, If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, his Christian brother or sister, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people, and not just Christians, if we don't love people, the, the, those that we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? See, the power and the genius of the great commandment is that it's so simple and yet so incredibly powerful when we act upon it that the smartest, the most important thing that you can do with your life is to love God and to love your neighbor. The best thing that we can do collectively to impact our communities is to love God and to love our neighbors. Now, last week we talked about the Good Samaritan, and, and we talked about the Good Samaritan who is in context to the question, who is my neighbor? Now, we talked about how our neighbor is really, it's humanity. It's any person that's in need. But I would strongly argue that the best place for us to start, the foundational place for us to start, is your literal neighbors, the people that live right next door or right across the street from you. Listen to the, how the Apostle Paul talks about it. Galatians chapter 5, he says, The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, you know this, but love means action. It's something that you do. Love is not just a feeling. It's not just emotion. It's not good wishes. Love means action. It means something that you do. Let me ask you to think for a moment. As you think about all of the different places that you live, maybe different neighborhoods, maybe your apartment complex, all the different places that you've ever lived, who's the best neighbor that you've ever had? Think about it. Who is the best neighbor that you've ever had? Now, chances are when I asked that question, immediately somebody or a couple people came to your mind. Let me tell you about a couple neighbors that we had. Uh, when we were living in Massachusetts, we lived as kind of, uh, it was kind of like a triplex. And the people that lived right next to us, 
It was Scott and Sue and their daughter Danielle. And they were great neighbors. I mean, Scott would always take our trash cans from the street and bring them, bring them up to our house after the garbage man came. Uh, they would always make their best effort to come to our parties, and they would always invite us to their parties. They would invite us over for drinks and to their backyard bonfires, and, and they, would, they were really kind to our kids, and uh, they, they sent their daughter over to our house, and they just seemed to genuinely like us. They were great neighbors. Let me ask you, who, who's the best neighbor that you've ever had? Because chances are, when you think about the best neighbor you've ever had, you think about something that they did. You think about their hospitality or their kindness or how they went out of their way to treat you with some kindness or, or the way that you felt around them. In other words, they were great neighbors because they expressed kindness and love in some specific way. Can I tell you that I think that the fulfillment of the verses that we're reading this morning is just this, that you would be the best neighbor that your neighbor has ever had. What would that look like in your life and in your neighborhood if you were the best neighbor that your neighbors have ever had? What kind of action would you take if, if that was your mindset and that was your goal, that you wanted to be the best neighbors, neighbor that your neighbors have ever had? I don't know what the action would look like specifically for you, but I guarantee you that if you wrestled with that idea and that statement, then your eyes would be open to opportunities to love and to serve your neighbors. And your ears would be open, listening for opportunities to love and to serve your neighbors. It would lead to a greater level of intentionality in your neighborhood. But I'll tell you, here's the reality that we're in, is, is we can't love our neighbors if we don't even know our neighbors. And the reality is, is that that's the place where the vast majority of Americans are today. In fact, in a Pew Research study, it's a major research group that they did, they found that 57% of adults either don't know any of their neighbors or don't know, they don't know hardly any of their neighbors. And of those that uh, know something of their neighbors, they just know not, not so much their neighbors, but they know something about them, like he's the Harley guy, or, or that's the mom that is always jogging with her, with her daughter, or, or that's the guy that always lets his dog poop on other people's lawns. Like We know something about them, but we don't actually know our neighbors. But I'll tell you, there's such power when we know our neighbors and not just know about our neighbors. Listen to this. Where people know the names of their neighbors, like, hey, John, hey, Susie, when they know the names of their neighbors, crime rates drop statistically 60% in that neighborhood. Not only that, there was a study done, a major study, 300, over 300,000 people were, were a part of this study, and they, it showed that those with strong social relationships had a 50% increased likelihood of survival. In 2011, people who perceived their neighbors as trustworthy, like they trusted them, they knew their names, and they trusted their neighbors, were more likely to report higher rates of health and well-being than those who said that they didn't know their neighbors or didn't trust their neighbors. There was a study in the University of Michigan that found that those with strong community ties had a reduced heart attack risk for people over 50. In other words, neighboring, being a good neighbor is good for your health. And not only that, but it's good for the well-being of your neighborhood. But I tell you, as I think about this season, there's a, another reason that's, that's equally, maybe even more powerful, uh, this aspect of neighboring, is that in, in light of all that we've been through with COVID, not being able to meet and gather together as a church, you realize that neighboring requires no church program. 
it requires no church leadership, it requires no budget, it, it requires you know, no oversight, no committees. It is perhaps the best way to be a decentralized movement, which is what the church has always been designed to be. I remember reading a, a business book called The Starfish and the Spider. And they use these two, the starfish and the spider, as a, as a metaphor to describe two different types of organizations. Talk about the spider as a, represents a, a centralized organization where you've got centralized leadership. You've got a centralized place where people meet and decisions are made. That's the spider. And a spider is controlled by the head. And, and of course, what happens when the head is cut off? The spider dies. But they talk about the starfish, and the starfish is representing a, a decentralized group of people, that it doesn't have a head. In fact, in a starfish, every single one of its major organs is replicated in each of its limbs. And so if you cut a starfish in half, do you know what happens? You get two starfish. And I remember reading this business book that I don't think has any mention of church whatsoever, and immediately thought, this is what the church is supposed to be like. This is what we're supposed to be like. But the reality is, is that for the last 1,600 years, we've been like the spider. We, we've, uh, you know, outside of places like, you know, where the gospel has been oppressed, like China or the Middle East, uh, and that's a decentralized movement and it's thriving. But in the Western church, our, our concept of the church has largely been reduced to a Sunday morning service or to a building and the result is that any impact that happens through the church happens during a one-hour service on Sunday morning or through the programs that the church initiates. And it's not that the service of the programs are bad. They're great. But when our concept of the church is the, is the people of Jesus on mission with Jesus, then there's no virus, there's no government, there's no catastrophe that can stop the advancement of God's kingdom through you and through me. And I'm telling you, this is where we've got to get. I've had so many conversations with people talking about how they just can't wait till we get back to normal. And I keep thinking that if our goal is to just get back to normal, then we will have missed a massive opportunity that the Holy Spirit is doing in the church today. We've missed it. And I want you to hear this. Because if the mission of Jesus is to go forward, it has to go forward through you. So we'll get back to Sunday services, but, but you need to know that, that the church is never closed because the church is not a building and it's not a service. It's us that are gathered together and scattered in these seasons. I was talking to a great lady in our church who's been going through a really difficult time during this season, and she's talking about how several people in the church have brought her gift cards and, and groceries at just the right time. And I've got to say, way to go, Gateway Church, and that's awesome. But what's really cool is that she said because of the gift cards and the groceries, she's been able to take a plate of food to a homeless lady just down her street. And, and there's an elderly gentleman whose wife is in a convalescent home and he's not been able to see her because of COVID and how she's been able to take a plate of food over to him every single day. And I just think this is so great because she told me that her and her boys every Thursday night after dinner, how, how they will go over to this elderly gentleman's house and, and sit just on, on the, steps of, the steps of his porch. And he's always there waiting in his chair with the door open and they keep their distance. And for one hour, they read him a book and read him a story. And they just talk and, and that's a great picture of neighboring. 
I was listening to missiologist Alan Hirsch talk about how to be a great neighbor, and he had a really classy and very uh, educated way of talking about this. He called it suckology. And basically, he was saying, you know, in order to be, to be a good neighbor, find out what's wrong. Find out something that breaks your heart, something that's not right, and do something about it. That's how you be a great neighbor. In fact, I was listening to, or talking to a, a lady in our church, and she was talking about how in her neighborhood, she's got so many high school graduates that aren't able to uh, have their own graduation, and it just broke her heart. And so she decided to write a card to every single one of these graduates and, and have a little gift and put it on her doorstep just to let them know that she was thinking about them. That is finding a need and doing something about it. She's being a great neighbor. So I, I really believe this, is that, that if every follower of Jesus was a great neighbor, it would change the landscape of justice and equality and loneliness and isolation. It would address nearly every social and spiritual need in our country. And I'm telling you, this is not going to happen with a Sunday morning service, as important as they may be. And this is not going to happen if the church just has better programs, even though we want to have those. This is going to happen when every single one of us understands that Jesus has empowered us with the same spirit that raised him from the dead and is now commissioning and sending us out in, into our neighborhoods. In fact, I think about John chapter 20, verse 21. Uh, Jesus is about to ascend to the Father, and he says this. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. As, as the Father sent Jesus as a missionary to bring the good news and to advance his kingdom, so Jesus is sending his people into our neighborhoods and workplaces and every place that we're at to be good news. You know, if I could get 100% of our church to just do one thing, and by doing that one thing, we would change our neighborhoods, it would be this, just one thing is that each one of us would be intentional in getting to know our six closest neighbors, just the six doors closest to you, and that we would not just know about them, but that we would know them and their names, and we would pray for them and look for opportunities to love and to serve and to listen, and whatever it takes, our six closest neighbors, that if we did that, it would change our neighborhoods. You may say, well, it's, it's easy for you. You're a pastor. You're probably an extrovert. And, and by the way, you live on the church property with other pastors. It's probably very easy for you. But once we had a neighborhood, <laughs> and I say that longingly, once we lived in a neighborhood, and, and we made it our goal to get to know all 103 of our neighbors in that neighborhood. And I'll tell you what, we sucked forward. We neighbored very poorly. We threw about six neighbor, neighborhood cookouts every single summer because that was the only time people would leave their houses in Massachusetts. And, and, and we, the parties were okay. They were the best that we could do. They were on a budget. Um, and both Sarah and I are introverts. And in fact, Sarah would have to leave about halfway through every party just because it was, too, it was, it was overwhelming for somebody that's, that's a high-level introvert. And, but what we did, I'll tell you, we did it poorly. But we did it with great love and intentionality. And my invitation to every single one of us is right where you're at, whatever neighborhood you have, no matter what your neighborhood looks like, is that you would love your neighbors with great love and intentionality. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I just ask for us as your church, uh, you've placed us all in different places for a specific reason, and that's to bring your good news 
to love and to serve into your name, to share with you, uh, share with other people about you, that we would be good news in our neighbors, neighborhoods. And Father, I ask that you would just awaken us a desire to get to know our neighbors, that you would uh, give us a great sense of empowerment and being sent by you, and that you would do a great work through every single one of us in our neighborhoods on behalf of our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.